people saying things like, maybe you weren't supposed to have children or have you just tried relaxing or why don't you just adopt? Like that hadn't occurred to us, you know? <laughs> like it's so casual. Yeah. You know, why don't you so just casual. adopt? <laughs> That's Laura. Over the last year, she and her husband have been getting lots of unsolicited advice. Why? I'm 32 years old. I live in Pasadena with my husband, Craig, and we're in the middle of our infertility journey. Today, we explore Laura's journey through the IVF jungle. I've had 66 doctor's appointments, seven invasive procedures, two trips to the emergency room, 93 blood draws, 75 injections, taken 658 prescription pills, vaginal suppositories, or skin patches. Discuss the types of loss along the IVF path. Each of these days in your life is 24 hours where you experience some sort of a loss that just happened, whether it was losing eggs or it was losing a life. There's losses everywhere. And learn what you should never say to someone who's had a miscarriage. I told them about my miscarriage and they said, oh yeah, well you know, Susie has breast cancer. From Bridger Media in Los Angeles, this is Philip Persia Radio, the limited series podcast channel with your host, Layla Jerusalem. I knew we were going to have to go through some level of fertility treatment after getting married and and trying to have kids. I have a couple of pre-existing conditions that make it impossible for me to have my own children. And I am probably one of the fortunate ones that knew that right off the bat. If you don't know that, your doctor will make you try for usually about a year on your own, depending on your age, before getting a referral to a reproductive endocrinologist. But because we knew already that I was going to have problems because I don't have my own cycles, we got a referral right away and we started treatment the month after our wedding. And how did you know that you didn't have your own cycles? How did that come about? Yeah, it was, um, I would say... I had my own and everything was normal when I was a teenager. You know, I got my cycle just like all the other girls did. In college, I started taking birth control pills. Uh, I also developed an eating disorder. So I am not sure which one of those things might have started any of the issues that I have now. Could have also been neither of them. But I struggled with an eating disorder for about two and a half years. And that could have caused some sort of hormonal imbalances. And then I was also on the birth control pill for about nine years. I finally decided to go off of birth control because I thought having hormones in my body, taking them every single day of every single year, doesn't seem like a great thing to be doing for myself. So I, I got a copper IUD, which should allow your cycle to return as it normally would, and it just never came back. And that's when I knew I was probably 26 or 27 at that time. That's when I knew that something was wrong. So I saw an OB and then I saw a reproductive endocrinologist and they diagnosed me with something called hypothalamic amenorrhea. And that basically means your hypothalamus has gone through some sort of trauma. You can either tie it back to an event or sometimes it happens sporadically. And it just doesn't send the signals it's supposed to, to your ovaries. So uh, I had that diagnosis. They also found that I had multiple cysts on my ovaries more than normal and certain hormone levels that were off. And that's diagnostic of something called polycystic ovarian syndrome. At that point, they decided there was enough wrong that they wanted to do an MRI of my brain. And they found a tumor on my pituitary gland as well. So between the eating disorder, the birth control pills, and the tumor, no one is quite sure the exact cause of why I don't have my own cycles at this point, nor how to fix it. Remind us again, the hypothalamus is responsible for regulating a woman's cycle. Yeah, it's pretty complex, and I won't pretend to be a doctor, but there's two really important parts of your brain that control your hormones. It's the pituitary gland and the hypothalamus, and they do a little dance together, and I don't know the intricacies of that, but if one of them is off, it can really mess up your whole system. 
your ovaries receive their signals from these areas of your brain. And so it seemed like I could have something wrong with either one or both of those parts. And the tumor affected the pituitary gland as well? They posit that I might be naturally thin because of it. I don't think there's any evidence for that. I also come from a thin family. And it could just be a completely benign tumor. They're apparently not incredibly uncommon. And they do happen. And most of the time, as you can see, I haven't had brain surgery. Most of the time, they choose just to leave it alone and monitor it. So I go in for yearly MRIs just to make sure it's not getting out of control. But unless I show any other signs or symptoms, they'd rather me go through infertility treatment than to try and remove this tumor that may not even be the problem. All of this was discovered around, you said, the age of 26, 27, mm -hmm. and something you knew about yourself. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, you were in a place where you wanted to find the one, and you found Craig, and you fell in love. And when did the conversation about this begin? How did you make him aware of what was happening? Yeah, it was a lot of trial and error to find Craig, too. <laughs> so I met Craig when I was 20, almost 29. I was, I was 28 at the time. And I think about two or three months into dating, the conversations came up about, oh, do you want to have kids? Yes. Do you? Yes. And I, I told him at that point because I, I never wanted it to be something where he was caught off guard or wasn't an informed decision he would make. And at that time, I just didn't even know if it was going to be a big deal. A lot of people go through something called an IUI before IVF. It's relatively non-invasive, and, and that can solve the problem. You could get pregnant and have a healthy pregnancy, which is one month of treatment. It's less common, but it happens. And so I wasn't sure where I would fall in those camps. We just knew that was something we wanted to start right as after the wedding. We both got married a little bit later in our lives. I was 31 and he was 35. And so we wanted to kind of start right away. But both of us wanted kids, probably more than one. And that was always kind of our path together. So you get married and you said that you were able to start the fertility treatments right away. Walk us through that experience. So you went to the doctor together for the first time and you had a conversation with the doctor. You probably went through a process that was pretty similar for a, lot of, for a lot of people in your situation, right? Kind of the standard step one in this whole process. I belong to an HMO. In that network, they do procedures called intrauterine inseminations. You can do them medicated or unmedicated. So if you have your own natural cycles, you don't need to do a medicated one, but that's where we would start. So it's generally the frontline defense for infertility. So we had multiple appointments with providers. Craig had to get his semen analyzed for all these different mobility, morphology, et cetera, things. Everything checked out great, which made sense. We knew the problem was with me. Sometimes it could be with both, but at least we had that on our side. And I started going down to L.A. for our treatments. It's because it's a medicated IUI, they give you certain hormones to induce ovulation. And because they don't know how your body's going to react, you go into appointments a lot. You go usually like every three to four days to make sure things are on track. And it's a really delicate balance between growing a follicle or two, which you'll, you'll ovulate, and producing a thick enough lining to eventually support that embryo that heads down there. That was a delicate and tricky balance for most, and myself included. So we played with various medications to make that work. I had three total IUI cycles. My very first one, we got pregnant. Much to our surprise, they say that the average you know, rate of success for any given IUI is about 20%. So I was pretty elated. We, we had our six-week appointment. They check you a lot. A seven-week appointment. We saw the heartbeat. Uh, we saw you know, the little arms and legs informing. And how did it feel the moment you found out you were pregnant? Oh, I probably indescribable. I thought, oh, my God. I made it. This this is it. You know, we're going to have a baby and I'm not going to have that horrible journey that I hear stories about and everything's fine. Everything's going to be okay. 
I kind of knew that something might be wrong because some of my, the pregnancy hormone, HCG, was coming back a little low. Not at first, it looked great, but after a while it came back a little low, wasn't increasing as quickly as it should. So the doctors didn't seem at all concerned. They saw a strong heartbeat and we continued to do monitoring appointments. And then at our, our nine week one, I, um, we went in and there was no longer a heartbeat. And I would say that was a big turning point for me. Like I can remember, I can remember the room. I can remember the mountains out of the window. I can remember the look on that doctor's face. And I can just remember how I felt. And that's when I knew that that we were going to have a different journey forward. So, but I won't get too much into that experience. I will tell you after that, we did two more IUIs. They both failed. And then... And how much time does your body need between IUIs? None. So once you once you finish one, they'll do an insemination. Within two weeks, you'll get a positive or a negative pregnancy test. If it's negative, you should expect your period within you know, a week. And your period is the start of every treatment cycle. I'm waiting for one now to start another cycle. So I was really hesitant to continue doing IUIs. The reason we did a total of three is no mistake. I didn't want to continue them doing them because I was afraid there was something wrong with my eggs. I thought it's uncommon to miscarry at nine weeks. I mean, most miscarriages happen before that. So your risk of miscarriage is, you know, one in four. But at nine weeks, your risk of miscarriage is less than 5%. And I thought something's wrong. I don't want to keep doing IUIs. I want to, I want to be able to take our embryos and test them. You know, everyone said it's probably a chromosomal abnormality. It just happens sometimes. And I got it in my, my type A head that what if they're all like that and we just keep having miscarriages? Oh, there's a solution, IVF. So through IVF, you can pay extra money and do something called, they, they call it pre-implantation genetic testing, and that'll look at the chromosomes. So I really wanted to do that if I could, if we were going to have more failed cycles and get to that point. We do have the fortune of having a part of our IVF covered by insurance, certainly less than half, but it's part of it, which is, which is still a large sum of money. And one of the qualifications is that you have a minimum of three IUIs that have failed. So we got through those, tried our best. And once they were failed, we got a referral to go outside of my HMO to an IVF clinic. I know that you work for your HMO, and this HMO covered you for close to 50%. Does Craig's insurance, if he has any, cover any part of it as well? He chose the same HMO for his insurance, but we looked at them all and none of them covered IVF to any more significant degree. That's where we were with it. We started IVF in March. I found a clinic that I liked that was nearish to our house. I liked the providers. And we started the IVF process. There's two phases to IVF. The first is the retrieval and the second is the transfer. For the retrieval phase, that was the easy one for me to at least achieve. It was horrible for my body. I ended up in the emergency room, but I have so many follicles as part of my condition that to be able to harvest them wasn't that difficult. So we had a really good retrieval. So how does your condition provide more follicles? You know, I don't really know how that works, but they call it the ring of pearls. So if you look at a normal woman's ovaries, you'll see maybe two to four. 10 follicles on each side and and each month one of those follicles matures and she ovulates it. If she ovulates two, that could become fraternal twins. I had like 40 on each side. Not that I was ovulating any of them, but they were all hanging out and ready to go and doing something. The only blessing in that is that when you want to stimulate them all and you put massive quantities of these stimulation hormones in your body, you can make them all grow at once. Most people, I think, retrieve an average of 15 eggs from those follicles. I had 39, which puts you at a risk of something called ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, which I got. And that's what ended me up in the hospital. That is a short-lived problem. And you get over it and then you keep watching your numbers. The consequence of that to the body is what? What actually put you? Was it pain? Was it bleeding? Was it? Yeah. What happens is 
when you have a large number of follicles that they retrieve the eggs from, each of those follicles wants to continue to grow after the egg is retrieved. So after you ovulate it, usually each of those follicles, they stick around within your ovary and they help produce the hormones that support your embryo in your uterus. But when you have, you know, 40 of them at once that are harvested, each of them tries to keep growing and doing the next phase and they they don't really know what's happening at that point. Again, I'm not a doctor, but but how it was explained to me is that they all swell up. And when you they all swell up at the same time, your ovaries become really big and uncomfortable and they can start spilling fluid out into your body. They say, you know, watch for symptoms and by spilling out into your body, that can cause a lot of other problems. They can cause pressure on your lungs. They can also twist your ovaries. You could lose an ovary from it. And usually that's the worst case scenario. That's what they want to avoid. So they say, watch out for symptoms. Like if you gain more than like five pounds in a couple of days, if you have trouble breathing, if you're vomiting, things like that. If you're stomach's really distended. So I gained 18 pounds in three days. I was vomiting so much. I just, I could, it was on the walls. I couldn't even make it to the bathroom. I went to the emergency room. And at that point, there's not that much they can do for you. They can give you IV fluids because I was dehydrated. They can give you painkillers. But at that point, once they're a certain size and you have a certain amount of fluid in your body outside of your ovaries, you just have to wait for it to go away. So I went in for IV fluids every other day for about a week until it resolved itself. So luckily, I didn't lose an ovary. But yeah, sometimes you can catch it with a medicine called cabergoline, but they didn't give that to me, which probably began my distrust of my doctor and clinic. So they harvested 39 mm-hmm. eggs and then... Then they put them in really fancy Petri dishes and all these controlled environments and try to kind of mimic the womb, I assume, and watch them for five days. Some clinics will tell you kind of the counts as the days go on and how many are making it. My clinic doesn't. They say they don't want to disturb them or look into them, so they leave them alone. But I actually skipped a part. So you get 39 eggs. Of those, we had 30 of them that were mature. Sometimes you can retrieve an egg and it's not quite developed enough. It's not at the right point of ovulation. And that's very common. They can also be over mature. But we had 30 mature. We had, I think it was 21 that fertilized with Craig's sperm. And they did it with uh, injecting the sperm into each egg. You can also just let the sperm kind of duke it out in a Petri dish with the egg. The clinics, generally now the trend is to recommend just injecting them so you get the most embryos out of this. You watch those for five days and we ended up with 14 embryos. So in that moment, you're thinking, wow, they've harvested 39, we have 30 good ones, and 14 are good. So how are you feeling I was so happy. You you see these horror stories where somebody has something like 30 eggs retrieved and five of them are mature and then none of them make it to this day five blastocyst stage that's kind of like the ideal phase for an embryo to get to. And they have to start all over again. And you start to worry about everything with going through this treatment, especially when you've invested so much of your body and your mind and time off work and your relationship in it. So I was really relieved. With those 14, we then did the chromosome testing and we got eight that were normal. So the testing is not perfect. They biopsy each embryo, but they biopsy the part of the embryo that eventually becomes the placenta, not the baby. So there's clinical arguments that are made that it's There's always abnormal cells in a placenta. When you give birth to a healthy baby, there's abnormal cells in the placenta. It doesn't mean everything. You can have a healthy baby from an abnormal embryo. But statistically speaking, if you find one that has normal placental cells, you may as well implant that one because it's more likely to be normal. So we had eight of those, five boys, three girls. They tell you that stuff. They grade each of them on this kind of a grading scale that looks at the quality of the embryos. And our our highest quality ones were boys. So once I recovered, we went forward with a transfer cycle. So that second part of IVF. So once I recovered from the hyperstimulation, 
we started a cycle to try and thicken my lining. And that's the part where I struggle. So I do really well with the harvesting of the eggs and not so much with the supporting of them. My first cycle, we got three weeks into it. And a few days before my transfer, my doctor canceled on us. He said that my lining hadn't thickened appropriately. And we had been trying to thicken it. We knew it wasn't ideal. So we had kind of upped our medication. So the thickening process is something that's monitored, right? So your cycle begins first day of your period, right? And then they're watching the thickening yeah, I usually go in, it's like day 7, day 10, day 14, day 18, day 21, things like that. You're not implanted yet at this point. We're just looking at... So they canceled the cycle on me. They said it's not worth implanting an embryo into an environment where your lining isn't thick enough to hold it. So that was devastating. I definitely now feel like I am in less of a rush than I did then, but boy, back then... I was blown away. I was just thinking, why me? Why is why is this going wrong? Most people don't have this issue. So, uh, you know, you get your period, you start over. And they changed my protocol. They actually added Viagra to my protocol, but it's uh, it's a vaginal one to try and stimulate blood flow. And no, it has no benefits to sex. I wish it did, but it doesn't. And that did help. So we got to a point where my lining was thick enough to transfer this cycle, this the most recent cycle I had. And we went forward with the transfer. We transferred a boy. And I did get a positive pregnancy test. And then again, my pregnancy hormone levels were not rising appropriately. Everyone thought, oh, it's, it's just going to be a chemical pregnancy, which is basically another word for a very early miscarriage. Do you know why they call it a chemical pregnancy? I was in you're showing that you're pregnant, but it's you're not really. Yeah, I think it's that it, you're showing in a blood test that you're pregnant, but if you looked into your uterus with an ultrasound, you wouldn't really see much. That's what they assumed it was, but your hormone level should continue to go down and it should pass like the first one did. But this time they didn't. They actually slowly, slowly rose. And so then they suspected it could be an ectopic pregnancy, which it didn't end up being. Some ectopics, you know, because I'm an IVF patient, it's very different to have an ectopic pregnancy than a normal one. Normally, if you have an ectopic pregnancy, your body is all, you know, jonesing to go for it and supporting this embryo anyways. So you usually end up having surgery or if it's early enough or your hormones are low enough, you could have something called methotrexate, which is chemotherapy. So I just want to explain that an ectopic pregnancy is when your fertilized egg actually implants in your fallopian tube. Is that correct? Yeah, I think it's something like 90% of them are in your fallopian tube. There are people who have quote-unquote ectopic pregnancies where they implant in your ovary or even in your uterine, I'm sorry, abdominal cavity. But for me, it was in my fallopian. So uh, my, I started, you know, at that point, the IVF clinic says this is no longer a managing a pregnancy. This is managing a miscarriage. We continue to have you pay to have us manage this out of pocket, but we recommend you probably go back to your, your OB and have it managed where it's covered by some sort of form of insurance. So, and I, I agreed with that. I went and saw my OB and we monitored. She wanted to wait as long as possible to either explore surgery or chemo and see if it would resolve on its own. And unfortunately it didn't. So like a month and a half later, we're still doing blood tests. And I had to make the decision between going in and doing something called a laparoscopy, which is basically looking into your tubes, your fallopian tubes to try and find the fetus and remove it. But if they don't find it, they will most likely opt to just remove the whole fallopian tube so that at least you can get over this miscarriage or else it won't resolve. The other option is you can um, take the chemotherapy. So I'm not sure which choice was the right one to make looking back, but I chose the chemotherapy. My IVF doctor recommended choosing the chemotherapy. I consulted with him as well. They generally advise that the less surgeries you have, the better. All the while I've had, you know, I haven't really talked about any of the testing, but between each of the IUIs after each miscarriage, before starting IVF, and then again after this ectopic, there's more procedures and more testing. So um, I had a, a hysteroscopy, which was incredibly painful. All of these are done awake. A hysterosalpinogram, 
which is another procedure that they do to look in your ovaries and in your, I'm sorry, in your uterus and your fallopian tube uh, and a few other random things that you, uh, some biopsies of my uterus. So those are all sprinkled into the experience. But I received the chemo and that was August 2nd. You have to take three months off because it's chemo and it works by depleting your folic acid levels. And if it doesn't work and you require a second dose, you might have to take six months off. I was tired for a week or so, but you know that's about it. With one dose, it generally won't do anything too crazy to you. And it did work. So my hormone level, my pregnancy hormones dropped to zero. And then I waited a couple months, had some more tests done, more blood work, another procedure. And then I started my next round of transfer cycles. So it just happened? It just happened. So our transfer cycle started about four weeks ago now, and the doctor changed the protocol, and I didn't really get an opportunity in my appointment. I didn't know he changed it, so I didn't have an opportunity to ask, and after the fact, when I questioned my nurse about it, she said, oh, it'll be fine, but it was a less aggressive protocol from the medication perspective, took out some of the things that they had added on my successful cycle. And I thought, you know what, maybe it'll be fine. Like I've completely overhauled my diet. I've thrown away every beauty product I owned and soap and household cleaning product and replaced with all these chemical free things. I'm on a high fat diet. I've completely stopped exercising. All these things that I've been hearing are like good for you and good for fertility. And it didn't work at all. It completely failed. My lining didn't grow one millimeter. So, And you found this out? A week and a half ago. And then what is a high-fat diet, What not exercising? What are they supposed to do to help you? Do you know any of the science behind it? I don't have a good grasp on it. I just know that high-fat levels are generally more indicative of a positive pregnancy environment and that there's a studies coming out around intralipid infusions, which is one way of getting a lot of fat into you, that they have really a positive outcome on IVF. Intralipid infusions are not at all covered by my insurance and they're $1,500 each. So, and you have to do a, a course of a series of them. So because the evidence wasn't incredibly strong for them yet, and some said, just go on a high-fat diet. I just went on a high-fat diet. So you do that. And then the exercise is to prevent losing fat, I guess, the stopping exercising. Yeah, I think that's part of the theory. And the other theory is that it's telling your body to focus on other things. So instead of on building muscle or lowering resting heart rate, whatever else exercise does for you, make you feel better, it's instead to focus on fertility and getting blood to your uterus. So over the course of this experience, which I am going to assume induced a lot of trauma, how much advice were you getting from lay people on what you should and shouldn't be doing in order to get pregnant? So very little because I don't tell lay people about what's going on because I can get in kind of the social support circles, but I have a, a social support circle, I would call it on Instagram. And it's basically an environment of women who are also going through infertility who create a second private account. We only follow infertility accounts and we post about, story about, talk about what's going on. And amongst those women, I've created some great friends, but also amongst those women, you hear these horror stories of people saying things like, maybe you weren't supposed to have children or have you just tried relaxing? Uh, completely unhelpful advice or why don't you just adopt? Like that hadn't occurred to us, you know? <laughs> like it's so casual. Yeah. You know, why don't you just so adopt? <laughs> <laughs> and then, so you're hearing, how did you find these women on Instagram? Was it a hashtag? Was it, how did you even find these women? I don't even remember. It must've been a hashtag. I probably looked up something like infertility and then found some profiles and started to follow them and realized that, yeah, this is probably it, realized that they only followed other infertiles. And that's what we call ourselves, <laughs> which we shouldn't. We should call ourselves people with infertility. <laughs> yes. Yes. That is the new socially accept, the woke way. The woke way. Yes. <laughs> of saying that you have a fertility journey. 
My conversation with Laura continues after the break. I just want someone to tell me what to do, and nobody tells you what to do. They want it to be your own choice. Preconceived is brought to you by Meta Natura. If you've ever taken medication for pain, you know that there can be a range of side effects. Medinatura gives millions relief without the side effects of conventional medicines. When I got seriously injured a few years ago, one over-the-counter muscle pain product gave me instant relief. Tea Relief, made from arnica, plant-based pain relievers in a cream of organic oils and organic shea butter, contains no dyes or perfumes. Medinatura products like Tea Relief, WellMind, Clear Life, and Reboost can be purchased on Amazon, Whole Foods, or Sprouts. Use code MIRACLE to receive 25% off your order on medinatura.com. Hi, listeners. Before we get back to the rest of this episode, we remind you that every share, rate, and review makes a difference. It keeps us connected to you and tells us what stories to bring you next. Share, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. This is interesting that you brought that up, just what you call yourselves. Like, what have you thought about the words that doctors and nurses in society use to address women going through what you're going through? So like infertility versus fertility and all these other, you know, words and all this language that we use to address these issues. Like, has that thought like popped into your mind? You've just wondered why we use these words the way we do. There aren't too many words that I can think of that cause stigma around infertility or that are used in a derogatory manner. But there's also a reason for that. And that's because nobody talks about it to begin with. When's the last time you heard someone talking about miscarriage in conversation? It's It just doesn't come up, at least in social media. So very little, I'd say, in terms of that. Miscarriage, talking about miscarriage is obviously difficult for a lot of people who are either going through it or, or people who need to hear about it or don't know how to listen or hear about it. Tell me about just this idea of how we treat miscarriages in general. Having gone through now two of them and having done it without knowing really anyone else who has, at least on a first level basis. Even when I was thinking about whether or not to come on here and to speak to you, I was thinking about, gosh, why am I doing this? Like, Talking about miscarriages and loss is uncomfortable, and I'm finally at a place where I actually I don't cry about it every day, and I am on medication to help me accomplish that, which has been helping. But, but I thought, why am I doing this for myself? Am I doing it for others? And I, I realized I was doing it for others. I was doing it for women who experience miscarriage and feel like I do, which is that no one's going through this. All you see on social media is pregnancy announcements and gender reveal parties. And you don't hear about women actually having not just miscarriages, but stillborns, SIDS. There's all kinds of loss that should really be acknowledged more than they are. So even if it's in my little way, I I want to be able to to be that woman who said, you know, I had one and it was awful. I say it's also for people who haven't experienced a miscarriage. If you haven't gone through one and you, you don't have a close friend or family who has, you may not have a great grasp of how hard it really is for someone, especially someone who wanted it so badly. So if a conversation like this helps bring awareness and if it helps bring perspective and they say, you know what, I, I get it now. And I, if I ever meet someone who is open enough with me to share that they had a miscarriage, I'll have a better understanding of how to support them or just how to say the right thing and not the wrong thing. How did Craig, you know, through this process of watching you, it's a loss as much for him as it is for you. So tell me about the experience of him going through this process next to you, with you, but also, you know, what he had to learn about miscarriages and loss and all of that. Craig and I are are a little yin and yang in many ways, but, you know, where I feel a sense of the clock is ticking and I want this soon and why is my body failing me? And kind of this, again, this sort of this type A story, Craig is the opposite. He is very relaxed. He 
is definitely the rock of the two of us in this regard. And he thinks that it'll happen when it happens. Um, there's no need to rush it. Um, there's no need to add stress to the situation. And he very often says, you know, Laura, stress probably makes things worse. He is also a pretty stoic person by nature, and he does have a hard time talking about his feelings. He has a hard time talking about what the losses mean to him. Eventually, we decided that we were going to name our first baby that we lost. And, and once we named him, Craig was like, you know what? This is hard. And that's probably the most that he will really recognize it at this point. I think he mostly sees himself as the person who needs to be strong between the two of us. And though we have mostly good times and laugh a lot, I think he still sees that as his role. But um, he knows that he's allowed to cry and he's allowed to be upset and he's allowed to be angry. And so I'll wait for those moments when they come up when they do. And how has this impacted your relationship? It has its downsides because... Instead of taking opportunities to travel, we go to appointments. And instead of celebrating with our friends when they have a baby shower, uh, we don't. And so those opportunities together as a couple, which oftentimes strengthen us, and even having a child we thought would strengthen us, they don't happen as we would hope they would this year. So that's been hard. My first miscarriage was a couple of days before Christmas, and I spent Christmas Eve in the emergency room. Those kind of experiences, when I look at my brand new husband, you know, we've been together and married for, at that point, four months. I'm thinking, you're already spending Christmas in the ER with me, are hard. That's hard. So, And his family, how have they reacted? They've been really great, as has mine. Very supportive. Uh, understanding. And I think they understand, too, that that Craig, my husband, is a really private person and that we'll share when we want to share. So they don't push a lot, which is also appreciated. And in your families, has anyone ever crossed the line and you've sort of had to have a conversation? So only with my 93-year-old grandmother who said, you know, is it really even worth it to have kids Maybe you should just not. It didn't affect me too strongly because we don't have a close relationship. And I think a 93-year-old woman's perspective is different than a 32-year-old woman's perspective on this, especially after she had three kids. That was hard to hear. But, you know, like a lot of things, I think you just have to brush it off and keep going. Finding this group of women on Instagram and, you know, looking for the support that you need, which is what you did. You were proactive in finding these women and you found them. What other types of support in addition to them have you really needed and found or have you really needed and not found? Support is huge. I've let my close friends know what's going on. Those who I felt comfortable, you included, I've added, if they wanted to, to my personal private Instagram page that follows my journey. And so there's about five women on there who are not infertile who follow me because it's sometimes just easier to keep them up to date there. Otherwise, they'll they'll text me and ask how things are going. And, and that's okay, too. But I think it's helpful. So the that Instagram community is strong. My other close friends, I, um, I do tell them about it and, you know, they're all supportive. None of them are going through it or understand, which can be hard, but they ask me how it's going and we try and still get together and have fun and they ask what I need and can we go on a walk? Should I come over? Do you want me to bring a bottle of wine? Uh, I'm really close to both my mom and my dad, though they're divorced, um, our relationships are both very strong, so they're completely in the loop. My husband travels for work about 50% of the time, though a lot of my appointments I go to alone, some of them I just can't. It's it's too scary, so my mom will come with me to those uh, and hold my hand and, you know, <laughs> hold my tissue. <laughs> and then I, I would consider my, my very, very best friend to be part of my family, and she has also been a rock in this, and she's thank goodness, a therapist by training. So <laughs> often has helpful things to say. Yeah. And your parents have been in healthcare. It must be that they have very specific approaches or feelings about 
how this could all be quote unquote fixed. <laughs> Luckily, we're all we're all pretty aligned there. We we all use Doctor Google too much and have formed opinions that oh yes, chromosomal testing is a good idea, and yes, we should do IVF some more. And oftentimes, I wish they had a different opinion than me because or at least a strong opinion one way or the other, because I'll be at a crossroads at various stages and think, gosh, should I do another IUI or should I start IVF? And um, should we transfer one embryo or should we transfer two embryos? And should we try a girl next time? And, you know, usually my parents will say, what do you think? What does the doctor think? So we, we haven't butted heads in any way on those things and come to any disagreements, I would say, but have somewhat similar approaches, which can also be irritating. Because <laughs> you want them to just say... I just want someone to tell me what to do. Yeah. And nobody tells you what to do. They they want it to be your own choice. And it's it's not like other conditions where you say, oh, you, you have diabetes, you should take metformin. It's you have infertility, but the road forward is not always straight and you have all these paths and all these things to try and they might work and they might not. And you just have to decide yourself what you want to do. And that is absolutely 100% where we are today, more than any other day of this journey so far, trying to decide what to do next. And before we get into that, tell me about the doctor that you found in New York. This was at a conference correct? He was one of the ones that said, try and go high fat. He said, just go keto, which I did for a while. And he founded a series of clinics that have a really holistic approach to treating infertility. It's not just medication and surgeries. It's CBD oils. It's changing your diet. It's yoga. It's therapy. It's intralipid infusions that most doctors, you know, not are not yet come around to. I was really intrigued by his approach. He scheduled these 20-minute time slots where he'd be available for a free consultation, and he was in Pasadena where we live. We took advantage of that, and I just asked him a million questions, and he made me feel a little bit better about what at that point, three months ago, we were trying to decide as our next steps, and I did feel better after talking to him about it. Just to have somebody so sure about what you need to do. I had a theory that... The reason the embryo didn't stick as it should in the right spot is because my my lining wasn't receptive. And lining receptivity is one of the main factors involved in ensuring a successful transfer. So sometimes when you have multiple failed transfers, you do something called an ERA, which is an endometrial receptivity analysis. Basically, you take you go through your cycle like you were going to do a transfer, but on the day of the transfer, instead of thawing an embryo and putting it in, you take a biopsy of your uterine lining. And you send that off to some independent lab and they'll look at it and say, you know what, she needed 12 more hours of progesterone or she needed, it's always around it, progesterone. She needed eight less hours of progesterone. And then for your next cycle, you can time it right. So my doctor, my IVF doctor, didn't really think much of this test. Uh, he's like, eh, you could do it. You don't have to, though. It might not make a difference. But the doctor in New York was like, absolutely. What do you have to lose other than a month? Would you rather waste another embryo? Or would you rather take a month to figure that out and just be sure? And I'm like, oh, I'd rather be sure. Because uh, once these seven remaining embryos are used up, I don't know what I will do if we don't have a child by that point or two children by that point, we will need to explore other options again. And I really don't want to go through another round of IVF. I'm interested in this idea of wanting to just know what to do and then having so many choices and or being indecisive. How do you navigate those moments when you just have to make a decision? I think everyone handles them really differently is was what I see. For me, I try and do it in a really quantitative statistical way, which is my comfort zone. I track everything. So I have this master spreadsheet where I count up all of my appointments, all of my lab results, all of the medication I was on. And, and I can sometimes use that to help me make decisions about what I want to do next. We just have to kind of go with doctor's recommendation and that's fine. Sometimes that's the relief. But the crossroads we're at now is the most interesting one in terms of trying to make a decision because it's not it's no longer about, oh, are you going to take estrogen pills or estrogen suppositories? Like those decisions I feel more in control of. It's 
are you going to stop doing IVF and are you going to explore either surrogacy or adoption? When is that breaking point for you? And those I, I don't know how to answer. Those are really hard and those seem to be answered with time. Each day that you don't make a decision, a decision is passively being made for you, which has so far been to continue doing IVF. You mentioned earlier that you have found a group of women to support you through this process. What kind of support have you felt that you've needed that is still sort of lacking, not just for you, but for all women going through what you're going through? I guess I would say it's the general stigma around not just infertility, but pregnancy loss. It goes above my friends and it goes into my just general social interactions with others where, you know, my colleagues or my second cousins will ask, how are you doing? And I say, good, but I'm not good. I'm very not good, but I also don't want to have to explain myself. Most people don't really want to hear, or at least I don't think they do, about, you know what, I just had a miscarriage and it was really awful. Because I'm not sure people know how to react to that. But that's not, you know, I could say that's as much my fault as it is theirs. Because you feel that you could educate them? Yeah. You could make it okay to talk about. I think it's similar to somebody telling you that they have a cancer diagnosis or that their father died you know, these, these other things that we absolutely understand and just say, I'm so sorry, let me know if you need anything, I'm here for you. That's really what people need who are going through a loss of a baby or, or a pregnancy need to. What's the most insensitive thing you heard when or if you did tell anybody that you miscarried? That it wasn't meant to be. It really, I think, degrades that that life and that hope that you had and the, the hardship that you put into it and the thoughts that you're going to have about that baby that never was for the rest of your life. And, oh, they'll be, you know, my baby would be four months old right now. And that's hard thinking about what that's like. And when you just say it wasn't meant to be, it's kind of like telling someone else who died that it wasn't meant to be, that they weren't meant to be here anymore. And I just, I don't think that that's true. I don't think that there was a, a purpose to the loss. Let's talk about the stigma. You've touched on it a little bit. Mostly that we as a society don't talk about it enough or don't allow ourselves to talk about grief in general, but then grief associated with a miscarriage. Talk about sort of that along with the larger stigma around this process of IVF, because it feels to me, at least in your experience, it may or may not be uncommon that there is loss tied into this process because just in the harvesting, there's a bit of loss. In the fertilizing, there's a bit of loss. In the chromosome testing, there's a bit of loss. So in a way, this process is touched by loss at so many different points. Talk us through that overall process of how, in general, it's a very sensitive process tied to loss and how we are not prepared to support women. It's nice that even you on this, in this conversation, acknowledge that there's loss at all these phases because, because there is, and each of these days in your life is 24 hours where you experience some sort of a loss that just happened, whether it was losing eggs or it was losing a life, there's losses everywhere. In terms of the stigma that comes up, you can even just trace it back to the the time old belief that no one should talk about their pregnancy until 12 weeks. That right there says volumes. Why? Is it because no one wants to hear about a miscarriage? You know, there's really no other reason that I could think of. So that is a huge barrier to socially opening up on this topic because you're told until you reach 12 weeks, you shouldn't tell anybody, maybe your mom, but you know, just don't tell people about it. So I think that needs to go away. Someone on Instagram and in my in the private Instagram groups did just come out of what we call it the infertility closet. October is National Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Month. And she used this as an opportunity to 
acknowledge her two miscarriages that she's had and to say, I'm one of them and they were important to us and they still matter. And if you're going through anything and you're, you're dealing with a loss or you have in the past, you know, feel free to comment below or feel free to reach out to me. I'd love to connect and support you. And I was like, you go girl. <laughs> I've talked to some of my closest friends about doing it and I just keep going back and forth. And I think it's important to do. And it's no one else's responsibility, I think, but people who have gone through it to make that call and that change. One of these days, I will get up the nerve. I do know that when we finally do announce a pregnancy, it will be, you know, whether it's late or when it's the baby's arrived, I will open up about our journey to getting there with a big announcement. It's just hard when you're in the process itself because you just don't know where the light is in the end of the tunnel. You also just worry about what people will think. And those are the wrong things to be thinking. And I wish I didn't feel that way. Thinking of um, this idea of hope that you move forward hoping, but on the other side of that is the potential for disappointment. You've said it beautifully. How would you sort of, you know, talk about this idea of hope for yourself? And whether you allow yourself to even have that hope or whether that is what propels you to move forward. For me, hope is very cyclical. Each month or each treatment cycle, I, I feel like it's a new opportunity and I have hope. When it doesn't work out, I'm hurt. And the more I hope, it feels like the more I'm hurt afterwards. So I think I was a lot more optimistic and hopeful at the beginning of this process and now I'm a little bit more hesitant and maybe realistic about what could happen next. Something that I had a huge misunderstanding of was that IVF is not a magic bullet. On TV and in the movies, you'll always see, when you do see it, which is rare, you'll see a couple struggling and then they have IVF and boom, they have a baby. That's just not true. It can happen, but it's not always the case. I can remember watching an episode of This Is Us recently. If I just look at statistically what that woman, what that character was going through for her to have had, you know, a successful first transfer and a successful first IVF cycle, really low possibility of that. But they show it that way. And so it just continues to persist this belief that IVF is this magic bullet. And in a way, there's an underbelly to that, that those who don't have it after their first cycle, you know, are kind of vilified in a way, even though it's not maybe obvious, right? That's sort of the maybe reaction that people are fed to have is that, hey, it worked the first time for X, Y, and Z. What do you mean it's not working for you in the same way? Absolutely. And that feeds right back into where you are with your hope. I thought the last transfer of our chromosomally normal embryo, and we had the right lining, everything was perfect it would have worked. And now I'm, I'm less sure. I'm a little less hopeful, but it still comes. You know, the only thing that keeps me going to all these appointments and paying all these medical bills is the hope that there will be good that comes of it. Uh, and, I, and I do see women come out of these journeys saying, I went through three IVF cycles and three miscarriages, and I finally have what they call your rainbow baby, basically a, a baby after the storm, or my double rainbow, or my triple rainbow, depending on how many miscarriages you've had or losses. And don't give up. You know, you'll get there. You just never know when it's going to happen. And so I grasp onto that, but it's hard to balance that with the devastation that comes after a cycle doesn't work or after a round of chemo or after another loss. So are you and Craig taking this one day at a time, a week at a time, a month at a time? What what have you decided? It's a really tricky time of year. This is at the point where I am starting to feel for my mental and physical health that I'll reach a breaking point at some point some point soon. I just don't know when that will be because each month I tell myself that it's going to be so hard and I don't know if I could do it again. I get up and I do it again. But we have reached out to a surrogacy coordinator to start to talk about what that would look like. That started a couple months ago. It's nice just to at least think that there could be pressure on someone other than me and that 
I wasn't relying on my body that is continuing to fail me. But in that process, from a really tactical perspective, we learned that most health insurance companies won't cover surrogacy pregnancies. So you need to buy your surrogate special surrogacy health insurance. And you buy that health insurance during open enrollment. And if your surrogate lives in, most of the time they don't live in California, they'll, they'll live somewhere else. That open enrollment period closes around December 15th. It varies, but it's usually mid-December. And so if we want to go forward with surrogacy, we need to decide that and we need to find the right surrogate and go through the matching process and have her on board before December 15th. So when we had this most recent failed cycle, which was an important test cycle before our transfer, it really blew our whole timeline up. We now won't have time to get through a test cycle and a real cycle and have an answer and know whether or not we're pregnant in time to capture a surrogate unless we decide to stop and go forward with surrogacy instead. The other option is adoption, but we haven't explored that one yet since we have all of these cute little embryos that we've put a lot of time and energy and love into. So I'm open to adoption. My husband is still a little hesitant. And I think we're going to talk about that later. You'd mentioned insensitivities that people can have one-on-one. -on -one. And just as a society, we are not prepared to handle women who have gone through this type of loss. Tell me about your experience of sort of navigating all of the other trauma-inducing situations that people may or may not deliberately be planting along your path. I would call it triggering. Moments will come up in the grocery store and you'll see a woman who's pregnant or a woman with a newborn or a young baby. And you think, oh, that would be about the same age as my baby would be. Appointments are hard, especially when managing a miscarriage. All of your appointments are generally in the OB department. So you're surrounded by happy women and big bellies and words of congratulations. And that's really hard. I generally don't even wait in the waiting room. I just say, can you call me? I'll be outside. Baby showers. There's Christmases with our nieces and nephews who are young all of those events are hard, and there's not much you can do about them. So something you touched on that I'm interested in is this idea of how those who are affected by it sort of have the responsibility of teaching others. It makes me think of, you know, women even just getting the vote and how nobody handed it to them. They had to, like, fight for it. And so do you feel it's sort of similar in a way that you have to fight for this right to talk about loss? So talking about loss is hard, and I do think it's important to do at some point. Some women might disagree with me. For a lot of women, it's just hard to talk about, so you have to respect that. And it's hard for me to talk about too, but I don't think things will change in terms of how society handles loss and how healthcare manages infertility and loss until we bring it out in the open. I do unfortunately think that that falls primarily on the women who are experiencing it. I think it would be really hard though to pull together a group of women like you would for another initiative, whether it be climate change or some other political topic. It would be hard to pull those women together to speak out on this. It's such a quiet group. It's such an inward group. And there's so much heartache and loss there that it's it would be hard to have a strong voice unless we had a really strong leader among us to do it. So I think there's a lot to come there. I think it will be an area of growth and opportunity. I just don't know what that path looks like yet. Because potentially it's just re opening the wounds and the trauma if it's not done correctly. Absolutely. You know, it does make me actually think of another thing that someone said to me that I, they were with best of intentions, but I found insensitive, which was who I was close with. I told them about my miscarriage and they said, oh yeah, well, you know, Susie has breast cancer. I wish I had said something, but at that time I didn't. And what I wanted to say was, Susie's a 65-year-old woman with three children, and 
has nothing to do with what I'm going through right now in my early 30s trying to conceive. This was all pretty devastating so far, and, and I thought what would be an easy chapter in my life has not been. It's been this relentless turn over and over for a year where you feel like you're climbing up a small hill and then you slide back down again. If you told me a year ago what would happen over the course of the next year, that it would completely break me. And it hasn't. Bit by bit and day by day, it unfolded. So I think by process of infertility is interesting in that it can slowly um, kind of break and rebuild and break and rebuild. And in that time, though the weight is for me the absolute hardest part, it's also the part that lets you heal a little bit at each stage. I think that was important for me to understand the things that seemed really devastating a year ago. And I look back, I think, you know, it's okay. I got over that hurdle. It does make you stronger and feel a little bit more badass when, um, when you look forward and you think something bad could happen, but I'll be okay. The other thing this made me realize was that I needed to focus more on appreciation and taking regular stock of what I have in my life. I think by practicing that, I try and think of something every day that I'm appreciative for, and it's a lot. And that's something I didn't think to do before starting this process. So that was something that I would recommend anyone going through this also do. The other thing I would say is that no one is looking out for your entire being as much as you are. Each doctor has their role to play, whether it's your reproductive endocrinologist to get you pregnant, your OB to manage your miscarriage, your OB to manage your pregnancy. You can have your, your gastroenterologist if you have problems there, your rheumatologist, your cardiologist. There are all kinds of doctors, and I've seen your geneticist. I've seen about seven or eight of them now. And they each have their role to play and their goals in mind. But something that I've caught a few times that I'm glad I did is that you have to kind of keep track of the bigger picture of what's going on between them and what's going on with you inside. If something doesn't feel right, if you're uncomfortable, you should say something. And that is something I've also learned the hard way. And now I'm trusting my gut more. I'm taking note of things that I didn't used to take note of because it could be important. And so being your own advocate, I think, is a big deal when you're seeing so many different providers and have such a long care path. What's next? I know you're looking into surrogacy or investigating surrogacy. It sounds to me like you're going to go through this, the IVF process, one more time at least. I vacillate back and forth um, between thinking about the next month and the next two months versus thinking about what our lives and our family will look like in one, three, five years and how old we'll be and how far apart in age they might be if we can achieve multiple children. We bounce back and forth between that. And I'm often checking in with my husband of, you know, what do you think about this? And what if we had the first one via surrogacy and the second one naturally or via IVF? And you know, what if we if we adopted one kid, would you want it to be a boy or a girl? Do you know? And so it it's this big tangle of thoughts and webs that through some therapy and also through time, I've tried to spiral into each of their own little balls and organize. And I, I would say that it falls into those two main categories of what can we think about for the next one or two months that's not overwhelming because inevitably things get off course anyways and you'll have to replan? And what can we think long term so that we're keeping something in mind that makes sense for us as we kind of move towards those goals? And for that, it's, you know, it's to have two kids by whatever means possible that we can before we turn 100. A note about this episode which was recorded in the fall of 2019. After Laura and I spoke, she went through several additional cycles, all of which failed. Her doctor recommended a gestational carrier, 
She and her husband began the process and matched with one, completing the required psychological and legal clearances and squeaked by the medical clearance at the last step. During all this, she sought a second opinion. Her new doctor thought she should try a new, less common protocol. That new protocol worked. Laura was able to do another embryo transfer a year and a half after her first miscarriage and seven months after her second. She and her husband put their carrier on retainer, but they didn't need her after all. She found out in March of 2020 that her latest transfer had worked. She had a difficult pregnancy, but gave birth to a healthy girl in early November. Laura told me recently that she hopes the narrative around IVF changes and that a lot of progress is still needed to get infertility covered by insurance, just like any other medical diagnosis. She believes forming a collective voice with a strong message is a step in this direction, along with reducing any shame and stigma around infertility. You can follow Laura's journey through IVF and now motherhood on Instagram. Her handle is comeonbabyh. That's C-M-O-N-B-A-B-Y-H. On our next episode, we hear from Kate. Oh, I knew somebody who had to do that, and then all the rest of their kids were just normal, natural. And I'm like, that's a nice idea, but for us, that's not going to happen. We don't want that to happen. Preconceived, Stories of IVF and Surrogacy is developed and executive produced by Layla Jerusalem for Bridger Media in Los Angeles. The series is produced and mixed by Jason Sheesley. We'd like to thank Stephen Winston for his branding expertise and for naming our show, Nan Ray for designing our cover art, and John Raymond Fisher for lending his voiceover talent. <laughs>